this story is about how we make sense of our family, our ancestors, and those who might have loved us, but were absolute assholes in the way that they showed it. Um, This story is about how we can work to see their love and transform their enduring legacies in our lives. So my grandma Ada, she was an asshole. Like, seriously, an asshole. Sometimes I might even call her an emotional terrorist. Um, When I was around 12, name brands were like everything. Um, It was like the late 80s, so I'm aging myself now. Um, And I I was wearing overalls. So those of you who are older might know that there was a special variation of overalls in that time that was guests. And they had this little kind of like heart-shaped thing in a pocket, a tiny little label that said guess here, and the button said guess, and then like one butt pocket had like a triangle that said guess, and it was like the thing. And I probably wore it with some really bad style choice, like frosted lip gloss and, I don't know, a perm and kids or something. But I don't really remember any of those things. I remember being like, hot damn. I'm wearing brand new overalls that I saved for like months. I, it feels like it was years, but you know, when you're like 12, a week seems like five years. So in my mind, I had saved up for months and months of my chores and babysitting money. Um, and I, I remember my grandparents coming to visit. They always stayed in a hotel because there was a pool. Then the grandkids would come and visit. Um, we lived in Texas, so it was warm. And they usually would kind of escape the winters in Kansas for a minute. And I remember kind of being exuberant and jumping in to, you know, saying hello to my grandparents. I was probably like Tigger and like, hi, Um, I'm in my overalls and I'm super proud. Um, And I don't really remember any words about it. I don't remember anything else at that moment after, after the excitement, except this white, hot flash of rage. Um, I remember the hushed gasp. I remember the shaming look. I remember the whispered side convo. I don't remember anything that was said, but I do remember the searing texture of that moment that turned joy into shame and how it flipped from welcoming to punishing in one split second. And when you're young, you don't know what to make of people's reactions. I didn't have the capacity to understand that her white flash of rage had nothing to do with me. It just scared the crap out of me, and it made me feel small, and it made me feel like I needed to be smaller. About 10 years after that, she she passed, and she I was I was young, I was only 20, and so I hadn't got to the moment that I wanted to know everything before her legacy was gone. Um, And my grandpa lived 22 years after her death, Um, and in those decades, really. It was really interesting because sometimes we would get little glimpses about the things that she never told us about that she kind of wanted to hide. Like for example, she what she took cooking lessons um, so that she would never be as bad as a cook as her mom. She was ashamed that her mom was a terrible cook and so she obsessively learned after my grandpa's family and took classes. Um, and how she kept nail polish on her fingernails when she had breast cancer so no one could see how they had turned black from the chemo. But often, even more than the little secrets that we found out, we found the things that that she'd never even told him. For example, where her family came from beyond her mom and dad, that her father had a fiery and sometimes violent temper, and we never even knew if she'd finished high school. Um, One day I'll find this out. Um, My grandma and grandpa met when she was 15 and he was 18 in 1942. They got married before he shipped off to war for the Pacific in World War II. 
When he died in 2018, we found a photo album that no one had ever remembered seeing before. And it was when she was about 16 or 17, and he was in the Pacific. And it was a photo album of the pioneer of selfies. I have never seen anything like it. It is astounding that using 1942 technology, she could she could make images that were so sexy, so alluring, and so innocent at the same time. Um, and she was it, she was doing these in a tiny little bath, a tiny little bedroom that just had like a bed and like the tiny little table. Um, and it was astounding to go through these pages of my grandmother being 17 and super sexy and missing her husband. Later, about the overalls, I recall that my dad told me that they had been absolutely horrified that their granddaughter was wearing overalls. These had been the only clothes they could afford when they were young. They cost 25 cents. I can imagine my grandpa saying something like, I worked my ass off to stop milking um, cows on the farm so this grandkid could wear something I swore I'd never touch again. Um, as a side note, my grandpa lived to be 95, and he never once touched milk after he left the farm. He literally ate cereal with water. Um, so I asked myself, and I still ask myself this, what was their logic that they'd endured so much that they had to protect us from reliving their pain? What was this fierce need to hide to keep secrets? When I asked my dad if it was okay to talk about my grandma to like this. He said, oh yeah, sure. Um, and he said that the most hurtful things that she would do was trying to control and by going away and giving the cold shoulder for days. She had all sorts of unspoken expectations on him, his family, on his kids, on us, and especially our appearance. And he said that he always tried to protect us from her anger. My dad remembered this week thinking about the overalls incidents that his grandpa, her dad, my great-grandpa, had always worn overalls. And this man who has hints of violent histories that she never spoke kindly towards was, the, the, was one of the examples of the overalls that she never wanted me to live through. So these overalls and all the appearance mattered so much because they didn't want to see and she didn't want to see any hint of the past that they'd carried, that they'd left behind, that they'd and they didn't want to carry the risk of going back to being less than or unworthy. Now my grandma Ada also is magic. She would make huge Christmas productions. She would do insane things like make scavenger hunts for every single grandkid and throughout her house and beautiful handwriting. Um, they carried on this tradition that like supposedly it was my grandpa's spare change and they would pass it out to each one of us and now as an adult, there's just no way that that much change would, you know, would be enough for the, the five grandkids. Um, and then she would do stuff like make cornbread dressing, Southern family, and she would make a special big tray for my cousin who hated onions, for onions, every single year, like twice a year often. Um, and then there's the red velvet cake. So y'all know what red velvet cake is. Um, it used to be, way back in the day, not very popular and sometimes like judgy. People would be like, that's gross, why would you ever eat red velvet cake? And the way that they would make the frosting was super special because, and no one ever does it in stores now because it's too delicate. But basically you have to boil milk with flour and it's called ermine frosting. And this was way before the internet, so when you had a recipe, you had 
It was written down, it had little notes from all the grandmas and grandpas on there, and then it would have like fingerprints from like red velvet, like red food coloring, because red, making red velvet cake is a disaster always. Um, and sometimes she would make like three or four in one Christmas because they would fail so many times in a row, but she would make it like weeks and weeks in advance so that there was always a red velvet cake that was like a solid one for us. Um, and when you're when you start adulting, you have no idea how much work is behind the curtain about this. So, um, and the, she would make insane things like the the table layout was like bleached and starched, and the and the goblets were were red because it was Christmas. It was an entire performance, and it seemed effortless, and it seemed um, natural, and it seemed what things should be. So. This, my friends, is an example of social, of social, um, I'm sorry, of gender socialization, right? So we have these, these relatives that perform all of these tasks and without showing us what's behind it and what has to be there and what doesn't have to be there. And so, for example, when my grandmother died when I was 20, I automatically picked up the torch to figure out how to make the red velvet cake because that was something I could do, and I had that skill, and that was the only thing I could do to fill this absence. Um, I didn't even question. I didn't even, I had no idea what the weight of the responsibility was. I just knew it was something I could do. And as an adult, as a female-identified, socialized person, that seemed natural to me. So when I think about this legacy and this enduring legacy, I think about the first times when I was kind of adulting and I was hosting in my, in my own home for the very first time. And honestly, I would lose my mind because suddenly there was a dust bunny that might have been there for months and I like desperately needed to pick that up right then and there or else everything would be wrong in the world. Um, and because I'm not a 1970s, 80s, you know, retired grandma, it's not that I would spend months preparing for one event. Um, and so I would always try to do too much or too little. And I would just have this kind of like anxiety that would boil up when something's not right, when people are interrupting your flow, because the stakes seem so high for making a mistake. So when I think about my grandma's anxiety about our appearances and the things that um, she her white hot flashes of rage would come around. I really reflect now on the ghost of scarcity. She was performing the opposite of her poverty and scarcity. And she was doing it with such zeal and anxiety and desperation because she knew, she felt in her bones that if she wasn't performing this, that she would be less than, that she would not be worthy of what she was in that moment. And as I've been uh, working on these kind of reflections and around kind of anti-racist work, I've seen we, there's lots of research that shows us the patterns of perfectionism, of class anxiety, and how those things are, re are related to white class anxiety, to all sorts of fears of being less than, um, and how the urgent need to put, prior, to put hierarchies and put places up people above and below is part of the legacy that we have of slavery and of racism in this country. And so when I think about that and I name it and I'm able to put my finger on these, these beliefs that live rent-free in our, in our heads, the beliefs that we have kind of 
taken over and never given consent to carry forward, I think about the things that we can carry forward, the things that we might want to carry forward. So for example, this year I made two red velvet cakes. Neither of them were on Christmas Eve, which would have been a complete and utter disaster back 20 bazillion years ago when it was my grandma's duty. Um, I also made red cakes in a way that made space for change, for the things that change of traditions due to pandemics, weather, changes in relationships and deaths. And so doing these tasks and doing these rituals, I choose to carry my grandma Ada's lessons in this way. I choose the enduring love of rituals and of the food and gathering. The love I want to endure in me is a love language of ritual, cooking, and honesty without the shame, without the racist class anxiety, and without the self-worth hustle. On days today, like today, I wear her pearls and I wear her ring to remind her, to remind me of her enduring love. Thank you.